0: Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like where are you from, there was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina Lives. Final episode of Tina Lives. 1986 The Insidious Stress of Second Chances. In the gray desolation of the life that I had created for myself, Glenn King was my radiant sun, always shining gratuitously while everyone else glacially backed away. Glenn and his lover were taking a vacation from their relationship, and Glenn rented a small place of his own in the Tony neighborhood of Hillcrest. He magnanimously offered me the guest bedroom if I promised to stay off drugs and make a new start for myself. I couldn't believe my luck or the naivete of the both of us. But I promised him I would, because that is what I always promised. The bedroom he adorned for me was very gay fancy and decorated in Asian style, but without the expected use of reds and golds. He chose the trendy, yuppie colors of the day, tan and beige, with only a hint of red in the cherry blossom parasols, which were held like cut flowers in a large oriental vase. The bedroom was so sophisticated that I couldn't resist the urge to get high in there because I thought for sure it would make me feel grand and magnificent. My naivete still clung to the notion that I could be a suave and debonair junkie, which is what I had always wanted to be. Unfortunately, none of that was true, and one shot led to another, which exposed my crude and unrefined disposition and left me feeling dirty and oh so typically destructive in this home of second chances and gentle beauty. Glenn, my most loving and forgiving mentor, had no choice but to kick me out. Somehow I found my way back to Ronnie, who was living in a house that was very much under construction and looked like it was going to stay that way for quite some time. He was trading carpentry work for a mattress on the floor, and out of love and desperation, I joined him. It was late winter, and the bedroom did not have walls, only exposed studs, lined with thick sheets of plastic, catching the wind and whistling about it all night long. The room was always cold and it never felt clean. It smelled unromantically of stalled out dreams, damp sawdust and mildewed sheetrock. The roof overhead did very little to disguise the truth of our homelessness. The chill in the environment seeped into the bed and the sex that I was having with Ronnie. Against my desire, our relationship, if you could call it that, had grown quiet, distant, and perfunctory. The all-encompassing hugs that Ronnie used to give me were gone, and I would try so hard to melt in his arms but he was stone cold. He used to look at me like I was the most beautiful woman in the world, but not anymore. He looked at me like I was a shadow, not really there, and I couldn't tell if it was the drugs or another woman. The anguish over what was obviously broken love kept me up all night, and I would spend the long and lonely hours vacillating between the face of Jimmy Swaggart on the television and the face of a man who had truly been my first love. As he lay there looking so beautifully asleep, I would meditate on his soft features, trying to find the answers. What happened to us? What happened to our love? I would beg a God, if there was one, to please give him back to me, the way it had been in the beginning. But my sweet, sweet Ronnie, lying right there next to me, may as well have been on the other side of the world. The chasm between us was so deep that I felt hollow, broken, and empty. The end is near. We played the charade of lovers until one particular night when Ronnie came to get me after my shift at JoJo's. Settling into the passenger seat of the car, wearing my brown polyester dress with an accent of orange and reeking of hash browns and bacon, I witnessed the end of our love with my own two eyes. not a word was spoken as I sat uncomfortably tussling with the stiff black apron that was still attached to my waist. I knew something was up because of the sharp prickling bush of nerves that was stinging my behind making me uneasily aware. Finally, after forever, he turned and looked at me as if I were a complete stranger. Physically, Ronnie looked very different from when I first met him. His thick, sultry body was much skinnier now, and the blotchy, telltale signs of drug abuse marred his once smooth complexion. The deep calm and carefree charm that used to weigh in his eyes was replaced by the harried and desperate look of a scavenger scurrying around looking for the last, measly crumbs of his survival. Ronnie himself had become a stranger, but I didn't care because I loved him. And still we sat there in silence, discomfort, and despair. The rejection that had been creeping up behind me was here now, and my shoulders collapsed forward trying to form a wall of protection around the wretched emotions that knew more than I. A disabling lump of garbled words welled up in my throat and sadness and anger erupted in my belly but still, no words. Ronnie kept looking at me as if he wanted me to be the first to speak but I wouldn't do it. I had my pride my love, and my desires, and I didn't want what he wanted. I wanted my Ronnie back, and I wouldn't say anything until I got that. In the coldest speck of my life, he dropped me off unceremoniously at the shambles of a house we called The End, and I never saw Ronnie again. Mick told me there was another woman, but I don't know, because nothing mattered anymore. Ronnie was gone, and I was a ghost. You could see right through me. I was only allowed to spend one last night in that house, and I sat alone on the bed, in the dark, re-watering the cigarette filter that had once held a good dose of drugs. I shot and shot and shot, what was probably just water, but I didn't care. My feelings were stiff and comatose and I would not allow them to have any meaning. I just sat there, staring off into the future and into the past. I thought about this house on 19th Street. I had only been to this part of town once or twice before when Lil and I were young and innocent. We used to come here to get high with a family of boys, and I had a crush on the younger son, Red Eye. His looks were the combination of Tom Petty and Robert Plant, and he was quieter than a Sunday morning. I thought about Charlie Rose, a journalist who had a late-night talk show. I used to watch him as much as I could. He seemed so smart which made me feel smart. And he spoke in slow, precise tones that I found gentle, like a lullaby. For a minute, I thought about the kitties that I left out on the street, but that hurt too much, so I stopped. I thought about my baby in the hospital and the way she smelled. I tried to find that smell in my mind by concentrating and I stayed in that place for a very long time, swathing myself as tightly as I could in the blanket of her memory. I thought about how my body was tingling with the sensation of rejection, and yet I couldn't cry. My insides were hard with tears that wouldn't flow, and I tried to make myself scream out, but nothing happened. I just sat there in the dark, numb and deflated, a calloused knot of emptiness. And I could not think about Ronnie. Waiting in chaos for one last miracle. My next arrest came swiftly and promptly while I was at some store using a credit card that a customer had left behind at JoJo's. I was past the point of giving a shit and wearing handcuffs no longer embarrassed me. They only confirmed what I already believed about myself. A loser of epic proportions. Restrained and bound by my own stupidity. The public defender assigned to my case told me that I would definitely do time on these charges. My record was stacking up against me, and oddly enough, in the state of Arkansas, credit card fraud is a huge offense. He said I would have gotten off easier had I killed someone. His words because one dare not steal the bank's money and expect to get off scot-free. A very good friend of Gorton's bailed me out of jail. His name was Dennis, and he was one of the people who had a nervous breakdown when Gorton died. He was a tall man, soft-spoken, and placid in demeanor. His gait leaned forward, as if he carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. And like Gorton, he was a community organizer. But unlike Gordon, he seemed to do this work out of some sort of mandatory past life penance. I got the impression that he bailed me out due to a sense of duty and obligation. My life had become a casualty and someone had to pay. It was clear to me that Dennis thought it should be him. Dennis loved Gorton, and he believed in his philosophy. But there wasn't much of Gorton left in the world. His ideals were crumbling under the weak and vain ethos of the 1980s, which was now being defined by drugs, money, and if you could get there all coked up, success. Gorton had worked so hard to create a nourishing and supportive community, but we had become selfish and self-involved, and I was living proof of that. I lived with Dennis for only a short period of time, trying to behave and trying to pay him back the bail money, but I was deep into this life that I had created and I couldn't see past my own desires or stop the criminal chaos. I couldn't do it for myself, for Gorton, or for anyone. Space and time never knew so much about you. Back on the streets, I spun from couch to couch and bed to bed, hurting everyone I encountered oblivious to the unidentified rage that was seething within. Opportunities were presented because they always are, but I destroyed every single one of them as if they were a brightly colored and exploitive game calling loudly to me from the midway track of the fair. I was both the winner and the loser as I carried around with me a very large and bulky, oversized prize of nothing left to lose. Except for my freedom, and the clock was ticking down on that. I had a vague idea about what to do, but in all honesty, I was hoping for a last minute miracle. They had come before, so why not wait and see what happened? In the meanwhile, I had a more immediate need, a bed and if I didn't act quickly, I was going to be sleeping in the bushes, and I was far too precious for that. The only person that I hadn't screwed over was Martha, so I called her. She had a girlfriend who was familiar to me, even though I had never met her. She sat with her eyes to the ground, still and subservient. Her body perched in anticipation of Martha's next desire. She rarely spoke and when she did, it was with a meek confidence, as if to convince me and her that her life was not what it appeared. They both agreed that I could crash at their place for a couple of nights in order to get my shit together. I thought the girlfriend might be jealous but the love between Martha and I was so obviously dead. And there was the simple fact that even though I was cute, I was still a loser and no one in their right mind would be envious of me. Breathing a sigh of relief, I sunk into a long, hot bath in their old-fashioned clawfoot tub trying to distract my body from a lack of drugs i liked their house and i fantasized about being their roommate maybe this was the miracle and maybe i could work something out with them and what an ironic turn of fate if martha and i could become friends after living a life of dysfunctional lovers unfortunately a more pressing need took over the following morning when I woke up all alone in their empty house, Jonesen. The slimy ass monkey that rode my back had me tearing through their drawers, looking for money with no consideration that this was it, my last opportunity for shelter. And with that, I found $200 stashed in a rolled up sock. It didn't belong to Martha or her nice girlfriend. It was in the bedroom of a roommate, Martha's best friend, a ginger-colored bull dyke with pallid, freckled skin that creased older than its age. She had once lived with Martha and me when I was rich, and I hated her. She took advantage of my generosity and disgusted me one day by telling me that her girlfriend's crotch was green. The girlfriend had some kind of STD, and I thought it was rude and disrespectful to speak of her that way. I had no qualms about stealing her money, because I thought finding it was an affirmation, confirming the vague decision that I was in the process of making. Martha's house was in Stiff Station, And she lived right across the street from my old hangout, the 7-Eleven. When I walked out her front door for good this time, I felt like I was participating in a game of Karma Go Round the Roses. Martha owed me. That was a fact. I had been the financier of our abusive lifestyle together. But after today, I considered the debt paid. I walked across the street to 7-eleven to get a carton of cigarettes, feeling the rush of cash in my pocket and the consequential buzz of truly hitting rock bottom. When lo and behold, as if I were on a tying up the loose ends of my life tour, I ran into Joe, who I had not seen or heard from since I gave birth to Lindsey. He was still pudgy and dare I say, still cute, arousing in me curiosity. We stood face to face in the parking lot, emoting mild discomfort, waiting to see who was going to speak first. He broke the ice by asking me to lunch, which by the standard of lifestyle I led was incredibly outlandish. But not having a single plan for the day, and of course being curious, I accepted. Sitting across the table from him at Sony's Big Boy was a stunning and surreal appraisal of what my life had become. A couple of years ago, I would have been ecstatic ecstatic. to be here with him. But today, my only thought was, what the hell does does he 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 want? And that is when the dullest of light bulbs went off in my head. Holy shit, was this the miracle? Did Joe want me now that I was a wreck of a woman? Jesus Christ, the irony. He probably did. I watched him intently as he droned on and on about how sorry he was that he did not come to the hospital. He asked me a million questions about the baby and I answered what I could. He told me how much he respected me for the way I handled the adoption. And I just smiled and nodded and thought, what a dipshit. I was finally getting the attention I had always craved from Joe And on this day, I hated him for it. He invited me back to his place, and why not? Once upon a time, he had meant the world to me, and my instinct said, go. We smoked pot, had sex on his floor, and for one fleeting second, I felt close to him. Maybe it was because of the baby. I didn't know but in that moment of closeness sadness rushed over me joe reminded me of two elusive qualities that i would never have sweetness and innocence and though it wasn't his fault i did blame him some while joe lay sleeping on the floor an opportunity presented itself. His black leather wallet sat next to a pile of crumpled up clothes and hush puppy shoes. I couldn't believe I was gonna do it, but karma did go round the roses and I only took what I needed. June 24th, 1986. In the tweaking hours of dawn, I made my way to the projects to score a set. The corners were quiet and the dealers were asleep. So I had to knock on a makeshift window made out of plywood with a small circular cutout for hand to hand transactions. I hated waking the dealers. In general, they weren't a friendly crowd and I pictured a sleepy-eyed kid, younger than me, wearing yesterday's clothes, rolling over his girlfriend and grabbing his gun to come answer the window. A voice, just roused enough to be annoyed, grunted, how many? One, I said, passing a $20 bill through the dark hole, hoping in turn for a tin-foiled set Buying from a drug house was no guarantee that I wouldn't get jacked, but I got what I wanted and that was a good way to start the day. I walked slowly out of the projects, aimless, all the while headed towards a destination for which I had decided there would be no turning back. The streets were foggy with a cooled down humidity And I listened for any car to drive by, hoping it would be a cab, or honest to God, that last-minute miracle I kept hoping for. But the streets were vaporous, dull, and dreary, like they always were. And I could almost taste the emptiness. So I just kept walking. In the big scheme of things, the crimes for which I had been charged weren't great, and they could all be explained away if everyone involved pleaded honesty, including myself, to their part of the story. But incarceration wasn't the answer. And as fearless as I was when it came to buying drugs, I was scared shitless of a jail cell. I pictured myself sitting in the confinement of an unbeautiful place, cramped and claustrophobic, pulling out one strand of hair at a time, while a mutiny of insanity took over and left me paranoid and babbling. I knew that would happen out of boredom, stress, and restlessness and I could only imagine that my eyes would go blind from the unnatural light. Some people were chill and didn't need environment, but not me. I needed change, beauty, and to always be moving forward. I was free and that's how it was going to stay. At the Trailways bus station, I pulled out Joe's credit card and bought, without suspicion or inquiry, a one-way ticket to Boston. I tossed the card into the garbage and went into the bathroom to shoot my last set of T's and Blues. When the call was made to board the bus, I did so without hesitation. In the wonderfully unaffected days of a synthetic heroin haze, I leaned my head against the uninviting headrest and began imagining the person I would become. I would have to change my name so the law wouldn't find me, and I picked Nikki with two Ks and an I because it sounded rock and roll. I would be an avant-garde, an artist of some sort, admired by invoking mystery, and I would live in an apartment with black-and-white tiled floors, drinking champagne at noon and decorating my bedroom, just like that of the dainty sexual flower I used to know in Fayetteville. But more importantly, I would be fresh, clean, and unknown, and I could be anything I wanted. There was no fear in me because I was high and also because there was no choice. I had squeezed every ounce of agony out of this town and it was time to get the hell out. When I was 11, leaving Fayetteville for Little Rock, I knew this place was going to be bad and it was a death death trap, trap, a suicide suicide rap. rap. No one listened to me back then, and I didn't have a choice. But damn straight, I was was going going to get get out out while while I was was young. young. Once the bus hit I-40 East, the good dose of drugs left me devoid of nostalgia. Although I did turn back and look at the city skyline, growing less and less substantial. This was no time for soft-heartedness and the facts were indisputable. I was leaving Little Rock the same way I had left my family when I was nine years old, alone and without goodbyes and with the same valediction that I held secretly back then. Goodbye and good riddance. You won't keep me down, because I'm a free girl now. The End